The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Um, I love doing this, cultivating loving kindness and um, the good qualities. Um, the problem that um, I, have, I have is sometimes I feel like the practice is to be with what is. And so the tricky part is to know when to be with something and when to actually cultivate these qualities. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so that's a really good issue. <laughs> Thank you for this words of wisdom. <laughs> uh, what I appreciated about um, cultivating vitality and effort was that it um, it helps me. Uh, Makes it easy easier for me to direct my attention. You have something to have something to direct. Yes. <laughs> Great, thank you. Behind you, there's a mic here on this side. You can go straight back. When to cultivate? When to drop? Uh, I like the metaphor of uh, of a jazz musician who spends thousands of hours doing scales and doing cultivating that musical strength and concentration. And then he can drop it all and just be in the zone, uh, in the music. Behind you, Peter. <coughs> Is this on? I'm working with... Um, cultivating that and allowing there to be discomfort in the middle of it um, and not allow so having cultivating that loving kindness and energy and just accepting what else is there and not having it interfered uh -huh. so, so the two go together for you so how to, how to have an attitude of loving-kindness while letting everything else be there without interfering with it. But you hold it in that loving-kindness. Thank you. Beautiful. Okay, so last one. Uh, it makes such a difference to me the way the words that are used and my, how my mind reacts to those words. So I really appreciate your saying it very different ways. For example, I have a real resistance to loving-kindness, that phrase. But when it's called friendliness... It's great. In fact, that's the kind of trouble I've had with Buddhism all along, is the way there are certain set ways of saying things. And I think the teachers that I appreciate the most, including you, are those who um, give many synonyms of those phrase, those words. Wonderful. Great. Fantastic. So, um, thank you. So, I hope, I hope that morning was nice for you. That's 
a little bit different flavor of these Dharma practice days than usual, and that's how it was mostly just kind of practice meditation and not any discussion among yourselves, as we often do. Um, so now we'll take lunch, and in the afternoon we'll, it'll be different again. In the afternoon, I think there will be some kind of discussion where you can engage in with each other. Um, <clears throat> but uh, some of that discussion, and the important part of that, happens over lunch. Those of you who stay here can be here for lunch. And uh, some of you are new here, and so I would encourage you to just uh, be bold. And, and this, is a, this is a good group to be assertive towards, because they're friendly, <laughs> I hope. <laughs> and, and, um, <clears throat> and so, you know, uh, hopefully you can introduce yourself and sit down with people, and, and if you like to talk, uh, get to know people, that's part of the function of lunch. And um, you walk, you know, sit down with people who look like they're, you know, just, 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 you know, just who are already talking. Don't, don't feel like you have to. No one's excluded here from any, any little clicks. And um, yes. Can you remind them to uh, invite them to use the restroom upstairs? Just there's yeah. not such a long queue there. Um, and then the sign up list too for people who live at lunch. The, um, so there is a sign-up uh, for that Inez has. That Inez does interviews, and she has also a, a group that meets in about uh, in between our our Friday meetings. She has a group on Sunday afternoons, kind of continues the discussion for what we do here, and then um, we have um, um, uh, you know she's available for interviews if you want to, or practice discussions, little one-on-one discussions about the perfections and working with them and life. And there's a, it's over there on stage. So the stage there, so if you want to be part of that, you can sign up or somewhere for that and talk to her. And for those of you who are leaving at uh, lunch, some people leave, the handouts are up here. You can take those. Um, and, uh, and the white handout, which kind of reflections and practices, if you might want to look at the month, as, uh, at the end of them, there's some, um, of most of them, there's a little, there's a f- six or seven that don't have them. <laughs> but the end of them have um, two verses. And those verses are not there. F- you could be there for your reflections at home, but um, at the end of the afternoon, I'm going to uh, give a little talk uh, that refers to those verses so I wanted you to have. So I'll pass it out by then. But that's what the verses are there for. So now you know, in case you scratch your head, what are, what's this doing here? This doesn't seem to fit anything. Yeah. Are those handouts online available? They will be at some point soon, if I can just remember to get them off my computer. So, so enjoy your lunch, and then we'll start again in here at 1.30. Now? Okay. Thank you. Um, so I'm going to talk a little bit about um, the two of the right efforts, uh, the avoiding or guarding against unwholesome states and uh, letting, abandoning and letting go of them. Um, but first I wanted to um, use an analogy that I like to use uh, in, under, in training the mind in the for right efforts. It's a little bit like training any other skill in some ways. And um, the analogy that I use in my own mind, you know, is playing the piano. 
is that when you're uh, playing the piano and you're learning a new song, you're, um, you know, you're, you're looking out to guard yourself, to avoid hitting the wrong note, right? Uh, so you do that by paying careful attention and uh, by also knowing what that note is supposed to be. Right? So you sort of know the direction you're going, what you're trying to do, and, and you're um, guarding to see that you do it. You know, so you're being mindful. Um, now, if you hit the wrong note, you know, obviously you're going to be- stop doing it, right? If you're learning to play the piano, okay, oh, I better stop hitting that wrong note. It sounds flat. Okay. And in the same thing as you develop your skills, you know, you try not to do it wrong, you know, but then when you do it wrong, then you, uh, you know, stop doing it wrong. And then you start to, uh, to, de- to develop your skill in the piano. So you practice, 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 you develop some skill. You know, that's, you know, um, you know the developing uh, the qualities um, of right effort. And then uh, the last is you maintain or sustain that effort until it becomes effortless effort. Um, and so, and in music, of course, you know, you finally play the song really well. Um, so in a very similar way, we can uh, work, with, um, work with that, with our minds and the qualities, uh, uh, unskillful qualities that show up. Um, so in um, working with our minds we're looking at um, guarding the senses as one of the primary ways of preventing unwholesome qualities Um, and our senses including the five physical senses of you know sight, sound, smell, taste touch, but also the sense of the mind. Um, because typically what happens is we come in contact with those senses, and if it's something that's pleasant, if we're not aware that it's pleasant and that that just happened, we have the tendency to grab onto it. When we grab onto it, uh, we have the tendency to get greedy about it. I want more of that, and I want to hold on to it. Uh, so it's only it's when we really notice uh, that initial contact, that moment of oh, this is a really pleasant experience, and you're aware of it, that you can see that moment when it's no longer a pleasant experience, but you're grasping onto it. And the moment you grasp onto any pleasant experience, it really actually stops being that that pleasant. And in the same way, if you um, if something shows up in your senses, you know, it's uh, a little bit cold or something, you know, the tendency is to want to push it away if we, if we don't stay aware of it. So at the core of, of avoiding these unhelpful, unwholesome mental states is being aware of the senses, being aware, staying alert of, those, of, um, of the senses, and being aware of, in meditation, and in daily life of the hindrances. Because those are the things that cloud our ability to see what's happening. Um, The hindrances are usually triggered by unnoticed sense experiences. 
they don't show up all by themselves. You know, you, you, don't just, you don't sit down and meditate and get hit by sloth and torpor all of a sudden as an accident. It's usually triggered by something that got triggered. Like, for instance, um, uh, there's certain thoughts that, that I could have that, um, I, that are really unpleasant, you know. And when those thoughts come up, my mind just, you know, wants to run away, right? And so it's this very unpleasant quality in the mind that got triggered. And the response to that is, go away. So, you know, oh, suddenly you're really drained of energy, sloth and torpor. Um, you know, let's say we're visiting someone, you know, and you walk into their house, and they've got this beautiful, beautiful view, you know, and you see that, and you go, wow, that's really beautiful. In that moment, what does your mind do? Does it just appreciate it and relax and enjoy it? Or does it say, I wish I had a view just like that? Yeah, and suddenly you go, well, God, if I made more money, if I had a different job, if I if I'd had different parents, you know, and you can you know go on and on and on, you know. So in that's it, and so that's where guarding the senses, right there, right there. Um, you know, imagine two friends taking a walk. You're having a deep conversation, really important to both of you, you know. And you, we all have different tendencies. Like for instance. Um, uh, people have different ways they get caught. You know, like, like, for instance, sound doesn't get my attention too much. You know, I used to love to study at really noisy coffee shops when I was in college, and, ne- you know, I just could concentrate. It never bothered me. You know, yet some people, you know, just a little bit of sound, and, and they're totally annoyed. You know, and, uh, you know, there's other things that grab me, you know. So we each have our patterns, you know, and you have these, these two friends just walking, you know, um, you know, at the park and uh, very, very into their conversation, uh, but he has a tendency to get caught by what he sees. And as they're walking in this very important conversation, you know, he sees, you know, a little animal over here and a little bird over there, and, like, you know, he keeps getting distracted, you know, and, um, you know, she's walking along and, and um, you know, a little annoyed that he got distracted, but back in the conversation. And, you know, there's somebody smoking behind them, you know, and she's very sensitive to the smell of smoke, you know. And so then she gets really annoyed and she's distracted, you know, and back in the conversation. And she comes to some conclusion and he doesn't like the conclusion, you know, and his, you know, and, and that's... That's a, um, a sense, the sense of the mind. It's an unpleasant. If you don't like somebody's conclusion, your mind feels unpleasant, right? And that's a really easy place to get lost in that, in that moment of that, you know, boy, I sure don't like what they're thinking, you know? And we get very, very caught in that, that, that opinion, that sense of opinion. And, you know, we're contracted and lost. So those are... Um, those are uh, some of the ways we get caught. And so then the next part is, you know, um, if we haven't guarded our senses, <laughs> uh, you know, we need to let go. You know, and we, and we notice uh, once we're caught, how do we let go? Anytime we're not happy, we're not at ease in our lives, we can do something about it. And uh, so there's something that we can let go of, or there's something that we can encourage. Um,
it can be really obvious. You know, for instance, um, uh, if, you know, let's say your spouse is supposed to pick you up. You know, and they keep you waiting half an hour. They forgot about you. You know, you're kind of pretty annoyed. You know, and um, it's pretty obvious. You're, you're angry. You know, and but you can easily see. You know, what am I clinging to? You know, I'm going. Oh. He should have. He should have done. You know, I think he should have done this. You know, this shouldn't have happened. You know, and that clinging to the way you think things should have done. If you really look at it, you can see that that's what's causing your suffering. You already waited. Now you're suffering because you think things should have been different. And in that moment, if you really understand that, how that's causing you pain, how that's separating from your spouse, how it's cause, you know, causing all this dukkha, um, it's, it's kind of like the typical analogy of, um, you know, if you're holding a hot coal in your hand, you know, of course you're going to let it go. So, you know, when you're angry at someone with something so obvious, it, you know, if you actually sit with it and pay attention, it kind of reveals itself. It's pretty, pretty clear. You know, staying angry at him is causing me pain. It's not, you know, creating anything useful here. So you let it go like the hot coal. But some ways, um, some things are a lot more subtle. And one of the things that for myself was really... Um, uh, a very, you know, kind of a cornerstone in my life was understanding that uh, my moods weren't me. Um, you know, it's very easy for me to see that a strong emotion, you know, would come and go. Well, yeah, that's not me. But those underlying moods, like, like somebody was talking about, um, what was it, about... Uh, drama, you know, um, like I grew up thinking that um, the great tragedies, that was deep. You know, that's where life really happened in those great books, all the great tragedies. And anybody who wasn't kind of deeply melancholic, you know, (laughs) was shallow, you know. And, um, you know, so that's... um, you know, so I sort of believed that my melancholy, my, my, my darkness, my sadness, all that dark stuff was really valuable. And that it was me. It was the authentic me. You know, and I'd be happy during the day, laughing, having a great time. You know, but I still believed that that stuff underneath, that was the real me. Because I came home and I felt those feelings. So everything else must have been, you know, not real. That was real. That was authentic. And so that was a real challenge, even wanting to let go of, of those states, because I just assumed that those were authentic and real. And so they required another layer of exploration, a, a, more, a more subtle level. Um, and often we don't see those states because they're kind of like the air we breathe. Um, I remember one of my uh, teachers uh, at, on a retreat was saying that um, you know he spent like a... 10 days on a retreat, just knowing there was something going on, he couldn't pin it down, what it was, or something that was a little disturbing, and after, it took him 10 days to realize he was lonely, you know? I mean, it, it sounds silly, but, but sometimes we function with these beliefs that are, that are these unwholesome states that are at a very subtle level, and as we practice, and a lot of the more superficial stuff begins to clear up, that's the kind of stuff that, that can show up. Um, so we have a lot of different kinds of, of um, 
unwholesome thoughts and unwholesome attitudes that show up. And um, you know, the primary way that we deal with these things in practice is by uh, you know, recognizing them, accepting they're there, getting to know them, investigating, seeing through them. Um, but sometimes that's not enough, you know. And one of my, um, one of the suttas that, that um, I spent a lot of time um, thinking about uh, is Majjhima Nikaya 20. Um, it's uh, how to work with distracting thoughts or obsessive thoughts. And um, he gives these five ways of working with unwholesome st- uh, uh, thoughts and states. And, um, you know, the first one is to replace the unwholesome thought. And that's a little bit, um, you know, for instance, you know, um, I had a grudge against someone. You know, they did something to me, and every time I saw them, you know, I tried to be nice, you know. Uh, but, but still, that kind of feeling lingered, that every time I saw them, it would just show up, that, that little bit of resentment, you know. And so I thought, okay, well, how can I work with this? You know, I'm trying to see through it. I'm trying to see the dukkha of it. But yeah, it still keeps coming back, that same, same response. And um, so I started doing is switching my focus. Instead of fo- focusing on what I didn't like about this person, I started focusing on what I liked about this person. And I could find something I liked about them. They're pretty smart. They, you know, they had, you know, they had definitely some qualities I liked. And it didn't happen right away, but over time, by replacing my, my habitual way of looking at them for what was wrong with them and for what I didn't like, f- focusing on what I did like. Um, and in a way, loving kindness is a little bit of, you know, uh, can be a replacement also. Um, you know, it's uncomfortable waiting at the airport. The chair's uncomfortable. It's a long wait. You know, I can focus on, um, wow, look at what it took to make this chair. You know, how many thousands of years, you know, for, for the materials for this chair. You know, it can be a completely different uh, uh, mental state just by replacing the kind of thoughts you're having about, about uh, the situation. Um, the second way that that um, that was mentioned as as a way of working with um, unwholesome st- thoughts is to reflect on the disadvantages, the drawbacks of of the mental state. Um, and um, one, an example, a very personal example that I'll give is, um, uh, you know, I was always um, a person, you know, personal difficulty for me it was always that I tend to be very um, controlling when I'm working, when I'm doing uh, jobs. And, and uh, I always had the, um, uh, I was usually the boss in whatever way I was working, so I didn't have to encounter it too much because I had the control. But then I started collaborating and working with people, and, uh, and it was really interesting because here I started working in the Dharma world, you know, and, and particularly when I first started volunteering uh, in the 90s, you know, at, at you know, a Dharma community, and I would get really into a project and really wanting it to come out the way I wanted it to come out, and, you know, which is fine. It's a great thing to want, want to do that, but I would get very controlling. You know, and I and my heart would contract around it, um, and 
I, you know, it's only in reflection after a while, seeing, okay, I'm doing this work to ease suffering in the world. And here, you know, in the moment, I'm really tight, controlling, trying to get things my way. You know, and, and the reflection actually let me see that. You know, wow, this con- what is the drawback of controlling? My heart's closed. You know, I'm, I'm tightening up here. This is, you know, I'm creating separation between the people that are not acting the way I want them to. <laughs> you know, and so, so the reflection was like really helpful at the beginning for me to start letting go of some of that control, to be aligned with letting go of that control, that, uh, you know, the purpose uh, is to let go of suffering, and that's greater than getting the job done. Um, the third method of, of, um, that the Buddha gave here is to ignore it. And, you know, when I first heard that, I go, ignore it, you know, you know, how do you, you know, that, that doesn't sound too skillful. But, but I think um, what that might mean is that um, when something happens to us, like for instance, you know, somebody um, uh, overcharged me for something, you know, and I'm kind of, you know, really angry about it, right? And, you know, as time goes by, I kind of get used to it. Okay, I got ripped off. Okay, I can live with it. And, and I, 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 it gets easier to deal with it. But then somebody calls me on the phone. They say, how was your day? And I tell the story about how they, uh, you know, ripped me off. And I get all upset all over again, you know. So I'm feeding the story. So what the Buddha said is ignore it. Okay, it happened. You can ignore it. Just don't feed it again. Don't just keep, uh, keep adding fuel to the fire. Um, so one, the next thing uh, he said was to investigate its source. And um, what's the underlying feeling driving your mental state? You know, for instance, you, know, you might be... Um, um, let's see, you might be really impatient. You know, you might be really impatient. You're sitting there, you know, you've got, um, you know, a hundred things to do, and you're waiting in line, and they're taking forever, right? And so, you know, it's one of the ways of working with this, just going right to the body. What is actually happening right to the body, to the source? You know, there's this, this energy that's very uncomfortable, and can you relax that energy right at the source of that, of that emotion? That wanting, I want things, I want, want, want. You know, can we relax that desire? It doesn't even matter what the story is. Can we just go right down to that source? And the last one, which, which was one that, um, uh, you know, when I first heard it was, um, uh, it was like hard for me to make heads or tails of it because it said... Um, it's restrained, but it's restrained with clenched teeth and the tongue pressing on the palate. Restrain, subdue, and beat it down. Okay, that, that didn't sound very Buddhist to me, you know. <laughs> and, um, you know, it took me a really long time to, you know, uh, to, to work with that. You know, and I sort of realized it reminded me of a magnet, you know. And, um, you know, with obsessive thoughts... Sometimes they feel like, like, you know, there's just two magnets in my, and it just wants to go there. It just wants to go there over and over and over again. And it's like pulling two magnets apart. We actually did that at home. You know, we, we, 
we were working on a, you know, my husband likes to experiment with magnets, you know, and it just got caught on some metal. <laughs> there was just no way we could pull it away. You know, it was just like try to pry it away. Um, but sometimes that's what we need to do. And, for instance, if we're in a situation where the only thing we can do is say something hurtful or do something damaging, we want to walk away. We want to just restrain. It doesn't, we don't have to be skillful. We've got to get away from that situation. If what you want to do is scream at your boss, you want to force yourself with clenched teeth not to do it, right? Um, so there are times, you know, it, it's considered a, um, a way of last resort. Um, it's better for you to restrain, even repress, if the other choice is to cause damage, cause hurt, cause hurt. Uh, so it's something we can do in the meantime until we have the wisdom to do something a little bit more skillful. Um, um, so that's, uh, uh, that's what I had on that. Um, and what I'd like to do uh, now is break up into some groups. And um, we'll break up into groups of, um, let's aim for four. Um, and uh, it'll be four or five. So, so if there's any um, extra group, extra people, try to join a group of four. Um, and... <clears throat> So we're going to spend um, about 10 minutes and just kind of go around in a discussion. And um, uh, what I'd like you to discuss is what helps you avoid unskillful mental states. Okay, so we're going to do two sections. The first section will be, uh, and I'll remind you what the second section is when we get to it, okay? But it will be on um, what helps you avoid unskillful mental states. And the second half will be on what helps you let go of unwholesome, skillful, unwholesome mental states. Um, and so start out, uh, you know, in the foursome, just kind of each one of you say something, you know, just something a little bit brief, and then just kind of keep going in a circle, and then, and then just feel free, you know, once you've all had a chance to speak a little bit, to just go back and forth more in a popcorn style. Um, so any questions before we break up into groups? Okay, so find four people. Um, and anybody who's not in a group, come near the front so you can find each other. Yeah, get comfortable. And I uh, would like to just hear back from you, uh, especially if there was anything that you learned from the group um, as to what might be helpful in avoiding unwholesome mental states or helpful in letting go, or anything else you want to share. And uh, behind you. A uh, couple of good things. i got a whole list of stuff, but I won't bore you with all of it. Uh, one person said when he's doing something that is potentially destructive or unhelpful, he asks himself, is that the person I want to be? Which I thought was really good. And then in another one, um, in, uh, a woman talked about kind of like this culture you get with certain people that you always talk about the same stuff and you always, you know, it's my experience that 
even with just two people, pretty soon you have this thing that you always do within that twosome. And so um, she suggested, she has this friend who always complains about her husband. And so uh, one of our thoughts was, you know when you talk to this person, she always talks about her husband, so I'm going to pre-plan. I'm not going to fall down that chute. I'm going to pre-plan and so that we will not then talk about that, which I thought was also very good. My experience is I usually just get into that thing and fall down into that trough without thinking about it. So that was a good suggestion. Okay, thank you. Over here. Who's got the mic? I suspect our group is not the only one that found ourselves kind of wavering back and forth on a threshold of not knowing the difference between avoidance and getting out of a situation. And, or that you only know you're in a situation after, you know, you can't avoid something until you, or you don't know what you should have avoided until you're already there, maybe, or something. Um, but uh, we, I don't know, I, I could go on and on. I'll just stop at that point. Thank you. Well, you know, I think, I think when we, we don't realize how often we're avoiding, you know, because when we're being mindful in practice uh, we're, and we're staying alert, we're actually avoiding all sorts of uh, pitfalls. You know, so, so we may not recognize that that's what we're doing. Someone else? In front of you. Um, I found that um, we were we mentioned some like specific examples of how we learned from our own experiences of how to um, you know replace our habits, and I found that basically all the things that we each individually had learned basically were different ways of wording the same for things that you mentioned. And they were all basically the same steps, which is basically try to be mindful so that when you notice something, a problem, a habitual problem starting, you can keep it from growing. And then investigating, you know, why that problem is happening. And then uh, changing how you see it. Like for me, I have habitual views if I change the, how I see it, then it doesn't lead in the same direction, in it, and instead I can um, react skillfully. But basically, it's just all different. We mentioned different ways of wording the same steps, and that they really work. Yeah, so that was, that was cool. Great, thank you. Anything else? We had some discussion about about um, 
avoiding the uh, unskillful mind states um, and how you really did that because if, if you're conditioned to experience these mind states then you have to avoid the stimulus in the first place or else you have to become unconditioned or else you have to that is you get to the point where you can make the choice to not go there and um, it seemed like we were making a pretty fine point of it you know well how do you how do you get to where you're either you're either making the choice and not going there versus not being conditioned or avoiding the stimulus that leads you to that place so there was some discussion about that Yeah, I think, I think as we practice, we have more and more choice. Was there another hand or... Yeah. Marcy. Marcy? Do Just something came up and I haven't heard that you're asking for. Whatever. For, ideas. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's it's, okay. Um, preparing for anticipated difficulties, like making sure that you've sat recently... Um, and, <laughs> and um, if you if you're do, doing something that you expect to be difficult, like a, a fractious meeting, I mean a meeting you're expecting to be fractious, um, cultivate your own open-heartedness and friendliness and open-mindedness before you go in, so that you can maintain your perspective and your equanimity. Um, and taking care of your health, very important. Get enough mm -hmm. sleep. Get enough physical exercise. Um, eat a decent diet so that, so that your, your body is able to maintain the level of mindfulness that you, that you want to sustain. Um, and lastly, accepting responsibility for your own actions and letting go of any responsibility for other people's actions. <laughs> Great. Thank you. Something that came up a number of times in our group in different ways was letting go of standards and comparisons, whether they be with regard to what someone else should be doing or how they should be acting, but most especially with regard to ourselves and um, how any sense of identification with a certain level of perfection or standard led to a tightening that made it just so much easier for any of these unhelpful states to arise. So that was really helpful for me when we discussed that. Okay. Um, we also came up with this theme of choice, that um, it was very important to realize that there is a choice and mindfulness allows us to step back from something and see that there are many different options or perspectives. And then when we got to letting go, um, there were cases where we thought mindfulness wasn't quite enough and that the actual letting go of the unwholesome state required some action you know, to go and actually say something or do something, but that that was enabled by this initial letting go of not getting caught in it through mindfulness. Okay, thank you. Over here.
Um, one thing, um, when you're really, really caught and not having access to um, the positive states at all, um, I think having somebody in relation to you that can hold that for you and not buy into your own stories um, can help you to find your way back to that as well. Great, thank you. Yeah, good spiritual friends. Okay, so um, one more. Uh, Mike, next to you. Oh, next to me. I was looking for Mike. This goes back to something you were saying earlier, and, and it's something I've played out in my mind at times and have had a discussion with a friend. Sometimes when you get so pushed to a point, and let's say you become unmindful, and you come back at somebody, sometimes it's that energy, you know, when we're talking about energy, that actually snaps that person out of how they've been acting towards people and towards you, because everyone is doing it in such a nice way and in this way or not responding back that it's sometimes it's that action that may feel so unwholesome at the time and maybe a little uncomfortable but it actually can change that person and drop them into saying like wow what just happened here and and it happened to me yeah. with actually a boss one time so, so the thing that we're looking at is the, what's happening inside you when you do that as opposed to the change you're having on your boss, you know, whether the state that you were in was wholesome or not. We can be very assertive and, you know, um, and still come from a really wholesome intention. So what was happening inside you when you did that? You know, a car accident can make somebody change their life, you know. Right, and, I, and I'm just playing yeah. with it because I do understand what you're saying, but sometimes yeah. I, you, know, you just kind of play with it and I, you say, well, okay, that state did get away from me. It's like, wow, I didn't, I didn't catch it. But it's like some, but the result also of not catching it yeah. ended up being a good place for one, you can end up reflecting like what's here and what that other person gets out of it and it actually turns it around to actually becoming something positive. It was actually ends up being positive in the long run. So it's just something I kind of yeah. You have, to, you have to be very careful how you measure the results. Because uh, what you think might be a positive result now might not be in the big picture. So I got very good results with my older son when he was young um, by using what I called my loud voice. <laughs> and he would do what I said. He stopped doing his bad behavior. He would shape up and things were good. Um, I thought, great, that worked. Some months later, he was using the same voice on his younger brother. I, I heard, I could see, hear myself. I said, uh-oh. <laughs> you know, it, was good. it seemed right at the time, but now I regret having done that. I think that you don't know what, you're, what, what, what cause and effect you're setting up in motion that way just because you use something good. The moment it seemed to happen. So you have to, I, th I think you need to use a lot of wisdom. I think it's very unfortunate that you snapped. I think, and even though you got, you, you, you're using the, your good results as positive feedback for snapping. 
uh, I think you should hopefully learn the wisdom to the sense, stay in control, and if a ferocious no needs to be made, you do it with your wisdom. This was before I was practicing. <laughs> I was still young and impetuous. <laughs> one last one. So one more. Well, I was repressing this one because it was so un-Buddhist, but since <laughs> Mike, since, <laughs> since you offered that, um, I'm a total clench, you know, the teeth, <laughs> repress type of person and come from that culture. But I have had people um, suggest, why don't you just <laughs> be angry at the person and let them fire back and you'll, lo- you'll learn from that that, you know, it's really not that big a deal. And one of my best friends said, you know, it's just not the end of the world when you learn that someone's a little angry at you and you're a little angry at them and, and it passes through. It's, you know, this, this too passes and it's, you see the impermanence of it. I know there's context to it, but um, it's, it's something, you know, ironically, my, my work is that edge of not necessarily repressing it, but being a little more free-flowing or that's one aspect. Not, and so I find it interesting whether that's... And then certainly in certain cultural... We, we observe different cultures hang, handle disagreement and anger in very different ways. And some cultures have been very successful for centuries with a more free-flowing sense of expressing negativity um, than the five steps that the Buddha is offering. So... Again, you know, like what Gil just said about how we, how we um, count success. You know, it's like a lot of very repressive uh, uh, regimes had a lot of um, lack of violence on their streets, too. You know, so, um, so we really want to look at what happens when we express our anger, what our intention is. You know, and sometimes, you know, I know for myself when I've expressed anger, even though, you know, the situation might come out okay, it's come out of wanting to hurt the other person. You know, and so that's not something that I want to encourage in myself. You know, so um, so I know there's there's cultural different cultural contexts. So I think it's a much bigger conversation, but that's really what I look at in that situation. What's my intention in, in this expression? Um, Thank you, John. Uh, So we should um, take a 10-minute break. Uh, We don't have a lot of time left, and Gil has a lot to say, so. so come back promptly. Thinking that maybe it'd be nice to teach something briefly uh, through a short sitting. And then I'll say a few words before we end. So um, we'll see how this works as a short sitting. But why don't you take a meditation posture or take a comfortable comfortable posture and close your eyes. And I realize that um, by this time of day, some of you are tired. So the energy thing might be particularly important. So if it helps you to sit up straighter, it helps you to breathe a little more deeply or helps you to breathe in a little bit more, emphasize the in-breaths. If you're tired, maybe don't try to relax any more than you are. Don't relax on the out-breath, but rather 
energize yourself on the in-breath. Sit quietly. And then, in addition to letting there be some vitality and alertness here, see if you can also allow for inner stillness. That perhaps intermingling with your energy and vitality, there is a place there's of stillness. That with that which you in within you which is completely still. notice, look around, feel your way around for that within which feels still. Or if you prefer, peaceful, unmoving. There is that which moves and that which is still. There is the movement of your body breathing, chest and diaphragm move. And right next to it, maybe even within it, but certainly next to it or near it, there's also that which is still. And then beyond the edges of your body, just beyond it perhaps, you can maybe sense or intuit a stillness there as well. There's not not only stillness within, but there's a certain kind of stillness beyond the edges of your body. Whatever sense of edges or boundaries you can feel your eyes closed beyond there, just beyond there. Things are peaceful and still. And there is movement or activity beyond you as well. The sound of traffic. For example.
and there's a coexisting of activity and stillness. Activity and peace. There's activity and movement and there's stillness and peace. And there's also the knowing of these things. There's that which knows activity, that knows the movement of the body as, it, as you breathe. It's that which knows the sounds around you. And there's knowing which knows stillness and peace. To, to know or to be aware <coughs> is a completely natural process. <coughs> Without trying, without any effort at all, the mind will know, will be aware. It doesn't require any effort for there to be awareness. If you remember to be aware, if you relax, you will be aware. If you're at ease, you will be aware. If you avoid getting caught up in thoughts, you will be aware. And for the next few minutes, let your mindfulness be mindful of whatever experiences come into awareness effortlessly, without any choice or effort on your part. The sound of my voice, sudden appearance of traffic, sensation in your body, a thought. There's a variety of things that can arise in the field of awareness. And it, it just, it, there's no effort involved with them coming into the field of awareness. They just appear, maybe unbidden. Instead of focus, instead of choosing to focus on the breath or anything, relax and begin noticing all the things that arise unbidden, all the things that occur and experience without any effort on your part, they just arise there. Notice what is effortless in your experience.
If you find yourself in thought, be content that knowing that you're thinking maybe has arisen effortlessly. And then stay in that effortless mode and see what arises in awareness next. What happens without any effort at all? Relax and open your awareness so that something you notice of what comes to awareness that requires no effort on your part. And then stay in that effortless place. Don't try any, to make anything happen or change anything. and then listen to what arises effortlessly. And then you can take a deep breath and when you're ready, you can open your eyes.
I don't know how that was for you, but when the mind is fairly stable, concentrated, and it's, there's no, the forces of distraction and thinking have abated, and so you really feel like you're here and present, sometimes um, a beautiful way of practicing is to not choose anything, not try to do anything, but to uh, simply notice what appears effortlessly in awareness and stay in that mode. We just let things arise, let things arise, let things arise. And uh, let go of the any efforts in relationship to what is going on or any preference or any agendas or anything, try to make anything happen. And to, so we see what happens when things are effortless. And um, sometimes it's hard to do that, because, but the hardness of it is that you start seeing all the different beliefs and feelings and ideas that we have about what needs to be done and who needs to do it. But it's you know to be able to rest in that effortless place is a very interesting thing. So I wanted to, in the couple of minutes we have left, see if I could uh, say something about um, So in in um, there is there, in, in the history of Buddhism, the way Buddhist practice is presented, there's uh, been often attention and, and attention which continues to this day among different ways of teaching the Dharma, different teachers, different understandings. And the tension is between there's many tensions, but one thing I'm thinking of here in terms of effort, there's a tension between that there are things to do and things to attain, places to go in practice, that uh, you, know, you're, you start with who you are, you're just a bumbling fool. Not any of you, of course, but... <laughs> and, um, and, that, um, and so you have to kind of, you know, you hear, you hear this possibility to walk a path, and if you can train yourself and cultivate these qualities, get concentrated, develop mindfulness, and, then something wonderful will happen. And so there's a goal in the future. And so you have to develop yourself, work on yourself, let go, polish yourself, purify yourself. And, uh, and then if you do all these techniques and do these practices and kind of work your way slowly over time, then some point in the future, something wonderful will happen. You'll get awakened or something. So the kind of the goal-oriented approach to practice, the technique-oriented approach, and then the other is that uh, the approach which um, lets go of goals, lets go of technique, lets go of the idea of trying to get someplace, but rather um, has mostly has to do with letting go into the present moment as it is. Um, and operating from the point of view that there's no goal, it's just this moment. There's no, nothing to attain. Um, they're just kind of realizing what you already are, in a sense. Uh, relaxing, opening up. And, um, and so then the question is, you know, how do these, these, there's a tension between the two, right? You can hear it, you know, one is you, the, the you know, technique people say make effort, you have to work hard, persist, and kind of keep doing. And the more the effortless people say, no, no, you know, you know there's nothing to, ta- nothing, no one, no one to be, nothing to get, and nothing to attain, just relax, open up, and, uh, and everything will, that needs to happen will happen by itself.
So this um, little bit like this tension w- played itself out in a very famous um, poetry contest in ancient China where there was, uh, as I remember the story, is, is that uh, there was a what was the person who was known as the fifth patriarch of Zen. They were uh, these patriarchs, these uh, kind of leaders or teachers who were transmitting Zen in the early days of Zen. And they said they had, there were six patriarchs, six of these primary people at the beginning of, of Zen in China. And the fifth one was getting, it was old, and he wanted to pass on the, the mantle of being the patriarch, the teacher, the head, you know, the one who carried Zen to his students. And so he, um, he was wondering who to do. So he, he asked his students to um, compose a poem expressing their enlightenment, their understanding of the Dharma. And he was going to see whoever you know, expressed the Dharma you know, best would receive the, the, the robe of the teaching robe and become you know, the sixth patriarch. And everyone expected that the head monk in the monastery, the senior student, would certainly you know, become the next abbot, certainly receive the mantle, certainly have the most brilliant poem. And so as I think as I remember it, um, no, one, no one dared, so no one really wrote anything, but the, to the senior monk, he wrote a poem. And apparently, I, I think the story goes that he wrote it on the wall. Maybe that's what the instructions, write it on the wall of the monastery. And so he wrote this poem that said, the body is a Bodhi tree. The mind is a bright mirror, or is a mirror bright. Carefully we polish them hour by hour and and let no dust alight. So the mind is this beautiful mirror, the nature of the mind, and we have to to polish it, develop it. It's kind of cultivating the good qualities, perhaps, polish it and develop it. And then we have to make sure that no dust falls on it. So all the defilements, we have to kind of guard ourselves from the arising of unwholesome states. And that was his uh, kind of verse expressing his dharma. But then, in the middle of the night, or in the morning when people woke up, there was another verse on the wall. And um, the verse was, there is no Bodhi tree, nor is there a mirror bright. Fundamentally, there is not a single thing. Where can dust alight? And so the abbots, the pit pit patriarch, went, well, who wrote that? And, um, and there happened to be a illiterate monk from the who was staying at the monastery and he he started off you know washing pots in the kitchen or something I don't know he he was kind of you know he was kind of considered kind of low status or not very people didn't think much of him because he was from the boonies kind of country bumpkin or something he couldn't read anyway illiterate and apparently the story is that he had someone write the poem on the wall he didn't know how to write and uh, the abbot said that's it but he didn't do it that way publicly. The story goes kind of, he said, he, had, he called him to his office, to his room, at the middle of the night. And he said, you're the one. And he handed him the robe, the teaching robe, passed it on. But you know, he said, 
people are going to be angry with you. And uh, so you better take this and get out of here. <laughs> so he left. And, uh, but when the others found out about this, especially the senior monk, they went and chased after him to get that robe. And the story goes on a little bit, but it had a happy ending. <laughs> but, um, but these two verses, and, um, and, the, and the, the, kind of the, the, the people who wrote history in Zen, the, the Zen kind of down through the ages, they sided on the side of this. They, they, kind of, they kind of aligned themselves with the sixth patriarch. So his verse is seen as being the most profound one. Fundamentally, there is not a single thing. There is no mirror. Where can dust alight? But um, both, are, both are profound verses. Both are relevant verses. Both are important. And to, say, and to choose one over the other, I think it's to, to, to do a disservice to you, to the individual, to people. That somehow people have to remember or hold both. And there's a time for heroic effort, there's a time for polishing the mirror, and there's a time for realizing, understanding there is no mirror at all. There never has been. And it's not about trying to do anything. Um, There's already nothing here. What can you possibly add to nothing? And just relax. And so there's no effort to be made, there's nothing to get, there's nothing to be. So both, both have their place. And so, uh, in a sense, uh, Theravadan Buddhism, the Buddhism of Vipassana that we're part of, if it errs on any side in its rhetoric, it errs on the side of the senior monk. There's a mirror to polish, there's things to cultivate, things to do. And, um, and sometimes it's not until people's practice gets quite deep that uh, they have some intimation, intuition, or some realization, understanding of the other side as well. But both have a place. And, um, and you might uh, consider the role from both of them uh, in your practice. That there are times when it's appropriate to polish, and at times it's appropriate to realize there's nothing to polish, there's nothing here, there's no one here. It's all empty, or it's all... And it's also possible to heal the tension, the division. It is to realize that in polishing the mirror, there is no one who's polishing. In polishing the mirror, there's no attempt to get a polished mirror. It's just polishing the mirror. Polishing the mirror is happening effortlessly. The polishing mirror is just as much as is, is can be just as uh, much can be just as much an, an expression that there's nothing at all as the expression there's nothing at all. So I don't know if you understand this, but you don't have to uh, stop polishing the mirror because you realize there's no mirror. So. Um, So the parami, the perfection of effort, is an effort that it takes to be aligned 
with freedom, with liberation, with awakening. And how do we find ourselves aligned with that? So sometimes it's by making effort and moving clearly in the direction of becoming freer of our addictions, our attachments, our stuckness, all these things that hold us down. And sometimes we align ourselves with awakening by giving up all our efforts to be someone, to attain something, to do something. So to align ourselves, and so to align ourselves, to harmonize ourselves to, to, uh, to a heart and a mind that's free is one of the beautiful tasks. And what they say, and what I believe, is that both ways of the way of cultivating oneself is a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful, I think it's fantastic. We should celebrate the fact that human beings can cultivate and develop compassion and love and freedom and wisdom and generosity and all these great qualities. And I think it's really fantastic and we should celebrate that if you really know how to let go deeply, relax deeply, and, and have the heart open, so open that there's no heart there even anymore, no mirror there at all, just, just let go completely, that somehow qualities of compassion, of love, of generosity, of wisdom, just comes out of that, flows out of that space on its own. So whether you're cultivating love and generosity and wisdom, or whether you're allowing it to just kind of well up or move through you, we bow to both, both occasions. I don't want to, I don't, I'd rather not pit one against the other. I'd rather bow to both. So I would give the robe to both, the, both, both people for both verses. So, um, so that's what we did today with effort and uh, you know, scratch the surface of the issue. But if there's uh, one thing I'd like you to remember is the idea that effort is a fascinating and wonderful topic and it's one of the ways to help guide us in our practice to pay attention to the quality of effort. And it's a big topic. Don't think you know what effort is ever. It's, a, it's the exploration of it. Eff- exploration of it, which is, uh, you know, big part of it. And then, um, and so next time, there'll be a next time. So next time we do, uh, I guess after effort, I suppose we have to do patience, right? <laughs> and uh, maybe we should have done patience first, but we're following the order. So we'll have things to be patient about next time. And the 4th of February. So, um, Thank you so much, and uh, it would be really wonderful if uh, some of you are willing to polish IMC's mirror. <laughs> and um, there's no mirrors to polish here, but still we, we vacuum the floor and clean the floor from all the crumbs from eating and the bathrooms. And So I think it'd be good if we were about seven or eight people who could stay with Aaron. Any, so we have people who can hang? Some Don and Ted and Barb and Shirley and Rick and Judy. And, Great. Right, so you can. Great. So there's a handout up here, and there's poems, by the way, at the back of that white sheet. And um, so thank you. <laughs>